Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. My name is Robin Maggio, representing the National Resource Center on ADHD, and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, Recognizing Challenging Behaviors in Young Children, Could It Be ADHD?, with guest expert Dr. George Dupal. The National Resource Center on ADHD is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. Today's webcast is part of our Ask the Expert series, Educator Edition, providing information to teachers and educators working with children and youth who have ADHD. If you're looking for further information and resources about today's topic or ADHD in general, we have health information specialists available Monday through Friday between 1 and 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can reach them at 800-233-4050. It's a pleasure to introduce today's guest expert, Dr. George Dupal. Dr. Dupal is a professor of psychology in the College of Education at Lehigh University. His primary research interest is the treatment of individuals with ADHD and related behavior disorders. He focuses on early intervention for young children at risk for ADHD, school-based interventions for youth in K-12 settings, and the assessment and treatment of college students with significant ADHD symptoms. Again, we're pleased to welcome this afternoon's guest expert, Dr. Dupal. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. I, I appreciate um, everyone's interest in, um, in this topic and, and your willingness to, to spend some time thinking about this topic this afternoon. Um, I have uh, obviously some information I want to share with you, but I also look forward to your questions on this topic area, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. So uh, the first thing that, that I want to review with you, you may already be familiar with some of this, but just to make sure everybody's on the same page uh, with regards to, uh, to ADHD, particularly as it's um, exhibited in uh, young children. Uh, first of all, just as a reminder, when we refer to ADHD, we're referring to uh, significant problems that children may have with uh, either inattention and or uh, hyperactivity impulsivity and that these are problems that are, um, are typically um, uh, chronic and are happening on an everyday basis and um, uh, you know, lead to impairment which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, so there are diagnostic criteria. The, the citation there, APA, is the American Psychiatric Association, 2013, published uh, um, a manual uh, that includes diagnostic criteria for uh, ADHD and other disorders, and so that's where uh, this is coming from. So ADHD, um, uh, it's important to know that it is a chronic disorder. It, it uh, uh, even when diagnosed in young children, can be chronic uh, for them through their lifetime for at least half, if not more, of, uh, of young children with early symptoms. And, and in fact, some of the most recent evidence uh, would indicate that it's chronic for um, uh, many more than 50%. Uh, so 50% is kind of the minimum uh, estimate in terms of chronicity uh, of this disorder. Um, <clears throat> approximately 2% of three to four-year-olds are um, <clears throat> can be diagnosed with ADHD, although, again, that's a figure that uh, is on the lower side. Uh, some of the uh, more recent studies of uh, the, the, the percentage of kids that have actually received the, this diagnosis at the preschool age would actually be even higher than this, uh, uh, you know, 5% or, or even more than that. So I, one of the ways I always think about it is if you have roughly 20 kids in a classroom or at least 20 kids in a particular classroom, that at least one of them 
will meet criteria for ADHD, and it's possible that more than one of them could have it. Uh, so all teachers uh, in every setting are going to be encountering these kids on a, on a pretty regular basis. Um, the symptoms in young children, the, the symptoms of inattention and or hyperactivity, impulsivity, um, are associated typically with impairment. Um, uh, impairment including um, uh, problems with defiance and, and aggression, uh, noncompliance, disobedience, that kind of thing. Uh, as well as uh, problems potentially with learning uh, uh, letters and numbers in their early literacy, early numeracy skills. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, some of the more sobering data would indicate that uh, many of these, these children enter kindergarten uh, already substantially behind their peers, uh, not only in terms of behavior and behavior control, but also in terms of uh, you know, their literacy and numeracy uh, skills. So. Uh, and not, not because they, they lack the ability to develop those skills, but because their behavior interferes uh, with learning the skills. So if we go, uh, let's see, to the next slide here, this uh, presents to you just kind of a, a brief overview of what's involved in the diagnosis of ADHD in preschoolers. Um, and this is comprised of, of several components. Uh, one of the main components is a diagnostic interview with parents uh, regarding the DSM-5 criteria for ADHD and other disorders. DSM-5, uh, for those of you not aware of that, that uh, refers to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th uh, edition. And again, that is a, the manual that uh, I, I referred to earlier that's produced by the American Psychiatric Association. So these are the agreed-upon criteria that... Um, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, other mental health professionals use to um, to identify what uh, disorders might be present for a given individual. Um, so what would be involved in this is to sit with parents for a half hour, hour or so and run through uh, not only the criteria uh, with regards to symptoms of ADHD, but possibly, um, uh, or not possibly, but definitely talk about other uh, possible uh, disorders that uh, that may be um, involved here. And I'm going to get to that in a little bit in terms of some of the things to think about relative to ADHD. Um, second uh, piece here is that uh, parents are asked to complete questionnaires about their child's behavior, uh, not only with respect to, uh, to ADHD-related behaviors, but also conduct problems, anxiety, um, disorder symptoms, depression or mood disturbance, uh, their social behaviors with other kids, and so forth. Um, I've put in parentheses here a couple of examples. Uh, BASC uh, stands for the Behavior Assessment System for Children. Uh, it's a commonly used uh, parent rating scale, published parent rating scale, with normative data for the U.S. population. Uh, another example is the Connors uh, Early Childhood Rating Scale. Um, which is a little briefer than the BASC. The BASC has uh, many items. Uh, the Connors is a little bit easier uh, for parents and teachers to fill out. It's, it's a little briefer. Um, but again, it has uh, normative data with regards to uh, ADHD uh, symptoms as well as um, uh, behaviors related to other concerns like conduct problems um, for a nationally representative sample. Similarly, we would ask, uh, frequently ask uh, teachers to fill out a similar set of uh, rating scales. And again, there is a teacher version of the BASC and a teacher version of the Connors Early Childhood Rating Scale. Um, and so we want to get perspectives from uh, the two individuals who spend the most time with the child 
um, in the most structured settings. And so that would be the parent uh, and the teacher. Um, one thing to note, if I just pause here for a second, um, it's really important to get parent and teacher perspectives on uh, the symptomatic behaviors because many times when a child goes to a clinic um, and is interviewed or, or evaluated with um, a mental health professional, they may not exhibit the same behaviors that they would show at home or at school uh, because the clinic is a very different set of circumstances and um, and so the behavior there may not be representative of what you see at home or at school. So it's really important to get uh, input from parents and teachers about what behaviors look like in those everyday settings. Uh, and, and to supplement that, to go to the fourth bullet on this slide, um, it's really, really helpful for the mental health professional to directly observe the child's behavior uh, in their, one of their natural settings. You know, uh, uh, what we do, I'm a school psychologist, so I'm, obviously I'm focused on um, behavior in school settings. So uh, what my colleagues and students and I do is we, um, we directly observe the children's behavior in the preschool classroom and uh, to see uh, the degree to which uh, the child has problems paying attention or, or being engaged with activities. Do they you know, flit from one activity to another? Do they interrupt activities? Are they uh, very fidgety and restless? Um, uh, do they have problems in terms of, uh, of, of aggression? Uh, and so it's really helpful to directly observe them in, uh, in the classroom uh, using a structured observation code. Um, and, and the other thing that we will look at there, of course, is uh, to what degree does the, the child look different from his or her peers in that classroom? Uh, so, for example, I've been to some classrooms where um, where every child looks like they have ADHD, um, perhaps because of the structure of that room or, or the, the teacher's management style or, or whatever. Um, it's hard to pick out who has ADHD versus who doesn't because there's kind of a high level of chaos, if you will, in that classroom. On the other hand, I've certainly been to classrooms where, you know, the degree of of structure and expectation is pretty clear, and, and for the most part, kids are uh, well-behaved, and the child with ADHD sticks out uh, much more noticeably uh, against that background context. So when we go to do direct observations, it, and there's kind of two purposes to that. One is to get uh, information about the child's behavior relative to um, ADHD symptoms, but also to um, to see what the preschool classroom looks like in, in terms of uh, structure and activity and expectations and so forth. Uh, and then finally, a very, very important piece of the diagnostic workup for this age group is to rule out um, developmental disorders, particularly autism, uh, because as you may all be aware, um, uh, children with autism, spectrum disorders uh, also have difficulties with attention and impulse control and activity level, uh, not necessarily as a function of having ADHD, but perhaps because they have uh, a developmental disability. Uh, and with this age group in particular, um, autism is, you know, the, the, the primary age where autism is diagnosed uh, first is, is in that preschool, toddler, preschool age range. So it's really important to rule out the possibility that uh, the child's attention problems or behavior problems may be due to autism spectrum disorder as opposed to ADHD. Uh, that said, kids could have both uh, disorder and ADHD. That is possible. But uh, it's much more likely that they have one or the other. So we want to make sure that we're going in the, in the right direction. So... Um, uh, all of you that are, that are listening to this webcast, I'm sure, have experience with young kids. And 
probably realize that there's there's a great degree of challenge of diagnosing ADHD in early childhood for a number of reasons. One is um, symptomatic behaviors that comprise this disorder are relatively common. Um, and you know, if you read the list of symptoms of ADHD in terms of uh, difficulty sustaining attention to tasks and, and talking frequently and moving about, fidgetiness, so forth. It basically describes every three, four, and five-year-old you know, okay? I mean, it's, it's a description of, of the kind of behaviors that we would expect from this age group. So, um, so that's one challenge, is, 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 is evaluating this uh, disorder relative to a background context of uh, kids in general in this age group displaying some of these behaviors. Uh, secondly, uh, there's a lot of variability between children, among children, in this age group in terms of their behavior and their behavior control. Uh, so it, it's hard sometimes to, um, to ferret out who are the kids that are, are having consistent uh, problems with, this, uh, with these symptoms versus those who have um, uh, periodic uh, problems with it or that's less consistent. So, one of the, so, so at the bottom of the slide are, are some of the things that we really think about to try to address these challenges. Uh, one is that it's, it, it's really critical to establish that the behaviors comprising the disorder are happening at a high frequency relative to uh, their age group and their gender. Uh, I should mention that um, uh, boys are more likely to display uh, ADHD symptoms than girls. So if we are evaluating, let's say, a three-year-old uh, boy with respect to ADHD, then we want to have assessment measures in our toolbox that include normative data for what a typical three-year-old boy would look like with regards to these behaviors. And that's where these rating scales, such as the Connors or the Basque, are really helpful because it does give us that background context. Uh, secondly, we're looking for chronicity. Uh, that is, it's, this is not just temporary behavior, you know, in anticipation of, um, you know, a, an exciting event or uh, it's not just a, you know, a one or two day uh, a week thing. This is something that's happening on a, on a daily basis for an extended period of time. By definition, the diagnostic, uh, diagnostic criteria requires six months of duration of these symptoms. However, um, some researchers in this area, such as Russell Barkley, uh, a well-known uh, ADHD researcher, suggest for this age group to, to be even longer uh, chronicity for at least one year so that we're establishing that uh, this is not just a temporary phenomenon. This is something that is uh, more ongoing. Uh, thirdly, it's really important that the behaviors uh, have to be found to be associated with impairment. So symptoms without impairment are not a disorder. I mean, that's something that I can't emphasize enough, that just showing the behaviors alone does not result in the diagnosis of ADHD. Those, those behavioral symptoms need to be associated with um, either impairment uh, socially, uh, academically, or behaviorally. Uh, so commonly what we would see with preschoolers with ADHD in the social domain is that they have problems uh, getting along with their peers, um, making friends, keeping friends. Uh, in the academic domain, they, they're having problems because they're, they're inattentive and impulsive. They're not uh, making the progress that we would expect in terms of letting, learning uh, letters and numbers and, and some of those early skills. Um, and then fourthly, I've already mentioned this uh, to you, but uh, just to uh, reiterate, we want to make sure that the symptoms are not related to other disorders or developmental delays. Uh, the big one that we think about for this age group is autism spectrum disorder and similar developmental disabilities. But with older children with ADHD, the other things that we would think about is uh, anxiety disorder or depression. 
uh, can sometimes lead to problems with concentration and, and attention, um, and we would need to make sure that um, that the apparent ADHD symptoms are not due to another disorder, uh, again, such as anxiety or depression. Um, <clears throat> so um, I, I'm assuming that many of you on this call are, uh, or on this webcast are, um, are teachers uh, or in the educational environment, and um, there's a very prominent role uh, for educators in the assessment process. As I mentioned to you previously, uh, it's really important to get the perspectives of the folks who are on the front lines in working with these children, both parents and teachers, uh, because clinicians like myself, we, we only see kids in a, in a short uh, context, and, and if we're seeing them in a clinic environment, that's, that's not uh, very representative of what look, they look like in the, in the classroom or at home. So, so teachers have a very prominent role here. Um, including some of, the, some of the following. One is observing the child's behavior relative to their peers uh, over time and across settings and activities. So these are three things to really think about. You know, what does the child's behavior look like uh, in a normative context? How, how do they look like relative to other three- and four-year-olds uh, that you currently are working with or, or you worked with in the past? Uh, secondly, you know, what's the behavior look like over time? Is it consistent over time or is it very specific? Uh, to certain times of the year or certain times of the week. Um, and then thirdly, um, how does the behavior vary across settings and activities? Uh, with ADHD, one would expect that the symptomatic behaviors are occurring fairly consistently, not necessarily across every activity or setting, but certainly across the majority of settings and activities, or more than 50% of them. If, if the behaviors are only happening, you know, let's say at circle time or uh, free time play activity or, uh, you know, very specific activities, um, but not at other times, then um, that would lead to hypotheses about, well, what's different about those settings or activities that's triggering these apparent uh, behaviors uh, as opposed to a disorder that would cut across settings and activities like ADHD. A second role for a teacher is, is certainly to discuss any concerns that the teacher may have with parents uh, in a very descriptive format, so non-accusatory, uh, non-challenging, but just describing the behavior as it is viewed, uh, not interpreting it in any way, um, not diagnosing, certainly. Um, and, and so rather than saying, I, you know, I think that your child might have ADHD, uh, which would involve an interpretation on your part, um, it would be more helpful to say, you know, I have concerns about Johnny's uh, attention during certain activities. He's not as engaged as other kids. Uh, he's moving around a lot more than other kids. He's, he's interrupting things and being impulsive more frequently than other kids. And, um, and so, so it would be describing those behaviors as, as opposed to, um, you know, interpreting them or, um, or, you know, going beyond that descriptive level. Uh, thirdly, it, it would be important um, to encourage um, uh, parents to seek an assessment of their child if the behavior is, is certainly severe relative to um, uh, classmates and particularly when it's associated with impairment. If you see, you know, the child really struggling to get along with other kids uh, and or struggling uh, academically as a function of their behavior, uh, then it would be really important to, to encourage an assessment uh, as early as possible. Because as I mentioned to you before, these are kids that may start school uh, pretty significantly behind their peers, and so we want to try to prevent that if we can. The other thing that teachers may be asked to do, as I mentioned to you previously, a good clinician is going to ask teachers to fill out behavior ratings, one or more behavior rating scales. As I mentioned to you before, I gave you, gave you some examples, the BASC and the Connors. 
um, because this allows uh, for you to provide you know, structured information about various behavioral symptoms, and then the clinician would be able to um, compare the scores that you give the child on that rating scale to the normative uh, population in the U.S. If we look at uh, the role for parents uh, in the assessment process, certainly um, they would want to meet with teachers to discuss concerns that the parents have, but also uh, to hear the concerns from the teacher uh, and to um, and to, to try to hear that in a, in a way that doesn't become a defensive um, position. Um, and again, this is where it's helpful if teachers are describing behaviors as opposed to making interpretations. It's less likely to um, engender or elicit um, defensiveness from parents. And similarly, if parents have concerns about what's going on in the classroom, they, they should be uh, relaying those concerns to teachers in a descriptive way. Um, so that, uh, again, it, it doesn't become a defensive uh, context. Um, parents also certainly need to observe their child's behavior over time and across settings and activities, as I mentioned to you previously. Uh, with ADHD behaviors, we expect that those are going to be chronic over time um, from day to day and, and week to week, month to month, but also uh, across most situations and activities. Um, Parents also should follow up on, on a teacher referral um, and, and follow up in, in, in an expeditious way. Uh, the teacher has concerns to the degree that they're um, making a, a referral for an assessment that, that, that should definitely be followed up on as soon as possible. And parents have a big role to play in the assessment in terms of um, uh, working through an interview with a clinician and completing behavior rating scales, as I've mentioned to you previously. Uh, and then health professionals obviously have a role in terms of um, uh, discussing the referral concerns with both parents and teachers, not just relying on input from one entity, but uh, certainly getting information from both parents and teachers, um, because it's, it, they may have different perspectives, uh, and they certainly are. The parents and teachers are viewing kids in different contexts. So, for a clinician to really do a thorough assessment and a comprehensive assessment, they need to get input from both parents and teachers. Uh, it's very critical. Uh, and this is all part of a, a comprehensive assessment uh, that's not just focused on ADHD symptoms, but also uh, focused on uh, other issues, developmental disabilities, autism, uh, other mental health uh, conditions uh, that may uh, either be happening in addition to ADHD or may be accounting for what looks like uh, ADHD. And then finally, I want to just want to briefly mention that you know there are constraints uh, for both organizational and legal perspectives uh, relative to uh, ADHD diagnosis in young kids. Uh, one of the things, one of the bigger challenges we have uh, as school psychologists in my profession is we have a relatively limited opportunity to observe child behavior uh, in cl preschool classrooms because um, the typical nursery school student, for example, may only attend uh, preschool for a few hours um, a couple of days a week or three, three days a week. Um, so in contrast to kids in K through 12 who are in school five days a week for six hours, um, there may be less opportunity um, and feasibility to, to getting observations done um, uh, because the preschooler is not at the school as much, uh, you know, on a, on a, certainly not on a daily basis. Um, a, a second uh, uh, constraint that, that um, I, I do want to emphasize is that Educators don't diagnose ADHD. That's not the role of uh, preschool teachers or educators uh, in general, uh, but rather to provide descriptions of behavior and the related concerns uh, around impairment 
that those behaviors may be associated with. Um, it's really important, uh, you know, th there have been um, legal challenges uh, to, uh, in some situations, this has been K through 12, not in preschool, but K-12 teachers who have um, essentially diagnosed ADHD or told parents that they think their uh, child has ADHD and that they should go get medication for it. Um, and that's, that's gotten people into hot water legally. Uh, so it's really important to not uh, take on that, uh, that role. Uh, certainly you can have it in the back of your mind that you're thinking about that, but, uh, but it's really important to emphasize the description of the behavior rather than the interpretation of the behavior. Um, and again, educators don't recommend med medication, but rather refer for evaluation, not specifically for medication, but for evaluation of, of what services might be helpful for a kid who has ADHD. Um, it, it's important to note that, um, and I know that the, this web uh, seminar series is going to be focused on treatment and succeeding uh, webcasts, but um, the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, for this age group emphasizes behavior therapy before medication as a treatment for young kids with ADHD. Uh, and uh, this is for a variety of reasons that I'm sure you'll hear about in future webcasts. But um, it's, it's really critical that as educators we're not directly recommending medication but rather referring for, um, for evaluation for services that might be needed. And then finally there are restrictions uh, regarding communication of health uh, problems. Uh, the HIPAA uh, Act uh, focuses on this, that you know, uh, protecting confidentiality of information uh, about uh, ch children's health uh, behaviors, including ADHD. Uh, and so we need to make sure that we're following those restrictions uh, and getting consent from parents, for example, uh, before communicating any information to a clinician um, is necessary. A parent needs to provide consent for that exchange of, uh, of information. So, uh, and then I, I have some uh, references uh, for you. Uh, they're provided at the end here that if you're seeking further information about some of the um, uh, concepts that I presented. Uh, but at this point, I'm, I'm certainly open to any questions or comments that anybody might have at this point. All right. Thank you. Great. So our first question is actually about um, the emergence of sensory processing disorders. So with the emergence of that, have you found, um, in your opinion or in your practice, that as a, it's been more difficult to distinguish children with ADHD? Um, I, yes and no. I mean, it's, it is um, certainly a consideration. Uh, I, I don't have specific expertise in, in uh, diagnosing sensory processing disorders. I would make a referral to uh, other folks in that instance. Um, uh, the, the main thing that I try to concentrate on relative to that question is with ADHD, you have uh, a much more you, you have a ubiquitous phenomenon of of kids experiencing difficulties uh, across a number of different settings, a number of different modalities of instruction, um, a number of different modalities of communication, um, such that uh, it's not apparent that it's you know specific to um, certain types of activities or certain types of presentations. And so I'm looking for chronicity. I'm looking for um, uh, you know, consistency, cross-situation types of activities that um, that tap into that processing disorder, uh, but that those attention problems would not be present uh, when there are activities that don't tap into that sensory processing disorder. Um, and so um, that kind of situational uh, discrepancy 
would lead to the consideration of other possibilities, such as sensory processing disorder. Whereas with ADHD, you would be most likely to see consistency across situations and across activities that would um, be counter to the idea of a sensory processing disorder. Great, thank you. Um, along that, th that same line, so diagnosing ADHD and having other um, other factors that play into it. We have a question about, are there any cultural factors that you see that come into play when diagnosing preschoolers with ADHD? And if so, um, could you give some examples of those? That's an excellent question. I, I don't know of data specific on preschoolers with ADHD, but there's certainly a, a fair number of studies that have looked at um, uh, cultural differences in identification of ADHD among older children and adolescents, and um, and there definitely is a cultural context here, a socio-cultural context. And uh, so, for example, um, the um, uh, on average, Af African American children, <clears throat> excuse me, obtain significantly higher teacher ratings of ADHD than um, non-African American children. And this is just in the general population now. So as you're looking at a normative group, uh, not necessarily with ADHD, but if we have rating scales completed, on average, uh, African American children get higher scores on those measures than non-African American children. So we, we need, to, and those were done with K through 12 kids. Now I'm not talking about preschoolers, but my guess is that it would be similar. Um, and so there's something about uh, the rating scales in relation to uh, differences in cultural uh, expression, cultural thresholds uh, that, that uh, play a role here that for me as a clinician, I have to be very careful uh, when I use these measures with uh, African-American kids in particular, particularly if their score is right around the threshold of clinical significance. You know, so if they're just kind of barely over that line, I have to wonder, you know, um, I have to be, you know, conservative in terms of the interpretation of that score. Uh, the interesting thing is that um, from a diagnostic perspective, uh, African-American children are significantly less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than uh, white non-Hispanic children in the U.S. Uh, so it's kind of a, an interesting, interesting conundrum. Uh, but one of the measures that we use, teacher ratings and parent ratings, uh, would seem to suggest an over a potential over identification of African American children, uh, but the actual incidence of diagnosis in the country uh, goes in the opposite direction. And there may be you know various reasons for that. Um, it, to the extent that race is correlated with socioeconomic status, it could be that um, uh, poorer families have less um, you know uh, access to mental health services and, and ultimately to an ADHD diagnosis. Uh, but it could also be due to skepticism on the part of uh, uh, certain communities with regards to uh, behavioral health issues um, and maybe a reluctance uh, to follow through on um, an evaluation or treatment because of that skepticism. So it's, we could go on and on about that. There's really a lot to talk about in terms of the sociocultural context of diagnosis of ADHD. Uh, what I try to do to, to you know, in the, in the absence of, of clear guidelines and information, is to be as conservative as possible uh, when thinking about this diagnosis, particularly with the African American uh, population, because of this um, uh, difference that you see, in, particularly in teacher ratings, but also to some extent in parent ratings. 
and but I don't know of any specific research on this phenomenon with preschoolers. Um, so I can't comment specifically on that, although I, I can't imagine that it's the situation is any different there than it is for uh, kids K through 12. Great, thank you. Um, we have a question about the legal constraints with educators, and uh, the understanding is that um, an educator does not diagnose ADHD, but do you have, what about if a parent asks a teacher um, if they think that their child has ADHD? Do you have suggestions for how a teacher might respond to that? Yeah, I think, you know, again, I would rely more on description. I would say, look, I'm, I'm um, you know, I, I can't really offer you an opinion on whether your child has ADHD or not. It's not my, that's not my training to, to do that kind of diagnosis. But what I can tell you is that, um, that he's exhibiting, he or she's exhibiting these behaviors um, and, you know, describing those as specifically as possible and, uh, <laughs> and also connecting those to any impairments that the child might have and to say, you know, um, you could even say, you know, even in the past, uh, these behaviors, I've seen these behaviors in other students um, who may have gone on to getting a diagnosis of ADHD, but, you know, maybe not necessarily. Um, and, uh, but, you know, again, I guess what I would emphasize is going back to the descriptive level of analysis and just saying, you know, this is really not my role to diagnose, but I have concerns because these are the behaviors I'm seeing. They're happening at a much higher frequency than I see with other kids. Um, and they are leading to impairment. The kid is not getting along with their peers as well as they might, and they're not uh, learning um, at the degree to which, to the degree that I think they're capable. And so it's important to uh, follow up uh, with a mental health professional um, and uh, to explore, you know, what the possibilities are, whether it be ADHD or something else. Thank you. We have a question about um, is ADHD being more prevalent now than in the past? Is it being diagnosed more? Um, or is it just being reported more often? Can you provide any insight onto that? Yeah, that's a really, that's a, that's a question that uh, uh, we have some clear answers to in parts of that question. We don't have some clear answers to the other, uh, other parts of that. So where we have a clear answer is there is very clear that more kids are being diagnosed with ADHD than uh, in previous years. So the Centers for Disease Control, um, um, which your resource center is associated with, um, conducts surveys uh, every few years about the rate of diagnosis of various entities, including ADHD. Um, and the latest report from that group from a couple of years ago would indicate um, that about 11% of children under the age of 17 um, have been diagnosed with ADHD at some point in their lives. Now, that's not talking about preschool specifically. This is just over that uh, childhood age range, 11%. And that's substantially higher than previous estimates from earlier this uh, century, uh, and even dating back into the late 1990s. Uh, there has been a systematic increase in the percentage of kids uh, up through the age of 17 who have been diagnosed with ADHD. So that's, that's very clear. What's not so clear is, does that increase in diagnostic rate mean that more children are getting the disorder than used to? So that, you know, an increasing incidence, if you will, in the, in the disorder. Or is, does that represent um, the fact that uh, mental health professionals are more keenly aware of uh, the symptoms of ADHD and are more likely to, to diagnose the disorder than in previous years just simply because of awareness. 
Um, or is it uh, overdiagnosis? Is there are there instances where we are too keen to see ADHD when it could be something else? So people are making mistakes, if you will, in diagnosis uh, is another possibility. Um, so, the, but we don't have a clear answer to any of that, um, other than the fact that it is very clear that uh, more kids are being diagnosed with ADHD than ever before, uh, and uh, that warrants attention to uh, you know looking at the practices of clinicians who are applying these diagnoses. Uh, are they using the recommended best practices uh, in, a, in a consistent way? And uh, are we either under or over diagnosing? We don't really have a clear answer to that. Great, thank you. I think that helps clarify. How do you deal with summer babies, um, children who are age appropriate, but they might just be less mature than their classmates? So they're born later in the year when compared to their classmates. Um, do you have any suggestions for parents and teachers to understand uh, those differences better? Um, so is that in terms of, you know, the, the higher risk for being diagnosed with ADHD or just, or is it a question of um, holding a kid back, if you will, until they, uh, because they're one of the youngest members of the class, to, to hold them back to be one of the older members of the class? I, I guess I'm not sure what the question, I, I want right. to best I, answer the question. Okay, I think the question is is referring to um, that different expectations might be needed for children based on not only the fact that it's just a three-year-old compared to other three-year-olds, but based on sort of when they're born within a year. Um, so I think it was more the first part of, of what you were thinking. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I, you know, there are, um, uh, it is very clear that uh, particularly in the early grades, there are substantial differences in uh, maturity and behavioral control among uh, the younger kids in the class versus the older kids in the class. And that tends to even out over time, uh, but certainly in the early grades, um, that, that does become an issue. And from a diagnostic context perspective, again, this is where I really want to make sure that I'm using uh, assessment measures that have um, you know, good normative data, where I can tie the child not to their grade level per se, but to their age level in terms of expectations. So I'm trying to take into account what their expectations are based on their chronological age as opposed to um, you know, the expectations for kindergarten or first grade or second grade or whatever it might be. Uh, because there is going to be variance uh, between the younger kids and the older kids in a class. That's just, that, that is a well-established uh, phenomenon. Uh, and so a good clinician needs to take that into account uh, particularly, as you said, when they're dealing with summer babies, uh, is this a uh, phenomenon related to developmental maturity that the kid will, quote-unquote, outgrow? Or is this a phenomenon that represents a chronic uh, disorder such as ADHD? And, it, and it's not an easy thing to ferret out, but this is why we try to incorporate measures into our, di our diagnostic evaluation that allow us to compare kids to others of the same chronological age. You know, the same phenomenon, the same question could be asked about boys versus girls. You know, the, the maturity uh, rates among uh, girls is faster uh, than boys, uh, particularly, you know, in the early stages. And so, um, you know, boys are going to present with less behavior control than girls. And I'm not talking about ADHD. I'm just talking in general. 
And so, we, again, we need to take into account those potential gender differences when we're looking at um, evaluating ADHD so that we're, when we're looking at a boy, we're using uh, a certain normative uh, context uh, relative to um, if we're evaluating a girl, we'd be evaluating that, that girl against other girls of, of the same age. Uh, so, so there's both an age phenomenon and a gender phenomenon that we need to take into account when we're diagnosing ADHD. Great, thank you. Do you have any recommendations that can be provided when parents are closed-minded in regards to having their child assessed or go in for an evaluation? So how teachers, educators, school administrators might be able to encourage parents to be open to receiving some support? Yeah, um, uh, good question. I think, again, it goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, is, is to, to try from the get-go to not put parents on the defensive um, and to be as descriptive as possible as opposed to interpretive um, about behavior. And because we have to keep in mind that because um, ADHD tends to run in families, it's possible that one or both parents could have had ADHD themselves or still do. Uh, and could have had bad experiences in schooling. And so they come into the school um, already kind of predisposed to um, kind of a feeling of failure or a feeling of ostracism. And so they already feel one down to you in some ways. And so it's important not to reinforce that perception of being one down by um, really being, you know, hardcore about uh, we really think your child has ADHD. It's really, really important that you get an evaluation because, you know, he's falling really behind. And, uh, you know, you've got to do your job as parents and, and, and lay on, laying on the uh, guilt trip or, or whatever. Um, I think it's important, uh, you know, we, obviously there would be concerns in trying to make sure that they do follow up, but uh, to, to do it in a... Uh, in a matter-of-fact fashion uh, and in a uh, descriptive fashion and in a, um, uh, you know, compassionate fashion of saying, you know, really, uh, you know, emphasizing the strengths that the child shows and, and what the teacher likes about the child uh, and really emphasizing that and saying, you know, I really want to make sure that Johnny or Susie um, starts kindergarten off right. And, and, you know, that may be a ways from now, but, um you know, it's really important because of these behaviors and, and the kind of impairment that, the, that Johnny or Susie is experiencing due to these behaviors, it's going to be really important to know what's going on before he or she gets to kindergarten so they can get started off in school the right way. So, so you're coming across uh, trying to partner with them in terms of concern for the child, but in a way that's not um, accusatory or could be uh, viewed as accusatory by the parents, um, and is, is, is very matter-of-fact and, and descriptive. Great, thank you. And on the flip side, we have a question from someone who is asking, what is the best advice you could give to parents who believe they may have a child that um, might have ADHD? Yeah, so again, at, at the preschool level, I assume, right? So um, yes. I, I think, you know, the first step would be to talk about their concerns with uh, other folks uh, who know the child pretty well, and of course, the most logical one at this age group is the preschool teacher, and to you know set up a meeting with that teacher and and say you know if this, these are the kinds of things that I'm seeing with Johnny at home. Are you seeing this at school? 
uh, and uh, or do you have other concerns about him at school? And uh, trying to get as much information from the teacher as possible. Uh, because one of the things that's really uh, important to realize is that teachers, uh, particularly those who are experienced, have had a number of years of uh, you know getting to know what's expected of a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a five-year-old, whereas parents, uh, particularly if, if if we're talking about the firstborn in in a given family, don't have that context. They don't have that history. They don't have that background to evaluate their child's behavior against. So so talking with the teacher is going to be really um, critical. Um, assuming that the teacher has similar concerns. Um, then, then the next step would be to talk to the child's uh, pediatrician or uh, family practitioner about those same concerns, um, bringing information from the teacher as well as uh, from, from you as a parent uh, to that physician, and, uh, and seeing either whether that person would evaluate uh, the child's concerns or more likely make a referral to a mental health professional who could do a more comprehensive evaluation of what might be going on. So I think the first step is to talk to others who have familiarity with the child, particularly the preschool teacher, um, and then and then bringing uh, those concerns uh, to to the uh, uh, physician who you know who works with the child, and and then you know go from there. Uh, and certainly, you know, there there's a lot of information uh, online and and elsewhere that parents can get information from. I mean, uh, obviously, the National Resource Center being the primary um, uh, place for that. Uh, as well as the CHAD organization. So there's a lot of good information out there. There's also a lot of bad information on the web about ADHD. Uh, and when I say bad, I mean inaccurate or uh, uh, harmful. And uh, so it's important to, to make sure that if you know people are going to be looking at websites and other information like that, that they go to uh, accurate, uh, get accurate information. So... Um, so you know the National Resource Center and Chad in particular, but uh, but again, if you want to pursue it, if you have concerns about the child, then the best thing to do is to talk to uh, the preschool teacher and then move on to the physician or family practitioner, um, and then go from there in terms of potentially a referral to a mental health professional. Great, thank you. What is the youngest age um, in which most healthcare professionals uh, can make a di diagnosis of ADHD? Well, there's no, you know, there's no uh, hard and fast rule on that. I mean, technically, uh, nobody would do this, of course. But I'm just, just, just to prove my, to, to make my point, um, you could diagnose an infant with ADHD. Uh, of course, nobody would do that. But um, there's nothing in the DSM-5, for example, that tells you the minimum age at which you can diagnose. Um, I think in practice. Uh, most people are very, very reluctant to diagnose this condition uh, with kids under the age of three. Uh, that, certainly, I have never identified anybody under the age of three. And even between three and four, it's, it's challenging for some of the reasons that we talked about earlier in terms of the developmental um, expectations for behavior at that age and, and the variability in behavior at that age. Um, so I would say age three in my mind, is the youngest to go. But there are uh, two-year-olds, uh, thousands of two-year-olds in the U.S. who have received the diagnosis of ADHD. So not everybody subscribes to that idea of age three. Okay, thank you. What about, are there, can you give some specific examples of behaviors um, somebody might look for for a child that might have the primarily inattentive ADHD in, within the preschool age, so what sort of behaviors would be considered inattentive at that age? 
So it would be, you know, uh, their ability to sustain attention to an activity for um, the same amount of time as other uh, kids would be expected to at that age. Uh, so you might see them flitting from uh, activity to activity uh, and not really being able to sustain focus uh, for uh, any extended period of time. Um, you may also see them uh, daydreaming frequently, so so they're they're you know kind of off in space in terms of their thoughts and and their focus, and they're not really focused on what's happening in the uh, immediate environment, but more lost in their own thoughts. Um, you may see them uh, forgetting uh, things fairly frequently. Um, you know, forgetting to you know you give them a set of instructions and they uh, and they forget them you know, within a very short amount of time after being given those instructions. Um, and it's not willful. You know, you have to kind of, as best you can, determine what's willful disobedience versus just, you know, uh, uh, lack of, of, of recall. Um, so those are the, you know, the sustaining attention, the engagement, uh, the, the daydreaming, uh, and uh, uh, problems with recall. Um, those, to me, are kind of the hallmarks of, um, of inattentive behavior in this age group. Great, thank you. Um, we have another question about uh, other behaviors, a disorganization and forgetfulness. Are those behaviors you can track in the three and four-year-old range as, as being concerning, or are those more for the school-age child? Well, the forgetfulness, again, I just mentioned that. I think that's certainly something to track. Um, and again, it's all relative to what's expected at that age. You know, so, you, so that's where it gets tricky. You have to think about, okay, um, you know, most four-year-olds, three-year-olds are not going to be able to follow, let's say, five-step directions that are only, you know, that are given once. They're not necessarily going to be able to follow all that, recall all that. Um, but, you know, uh, they certainly should be able to follow one or two-step or even three-step directions with minimal prompting. Um, so if you see kids, um, you know, forgetting in that context relative to what would be expected and what their peers are doing, then that's certainly something to track. The disorganization, again, what level of organization do we expect for three- and four-year-olds? You know, um, what, what are the reasonable expectations for being organized? Uh, you know, they're, they're, um, uh, to what degree uh, do, do, do we expect them to be neat in, in, in their drawing or, or their coloring or, or other things that they do, um, uh, you know, as part of the activities? We, we, we look at what are the expectations in terms of organization for that age group, which are minimal. You know, uh, that, that, that we certainly are not expecting uh, a three and four year old to be highly organized in in the way that they attack tasks or the way that they keep their space uh, up uh, and so but that said, uh, a young ADHD child is more disorganized than their same age peer uh, and so again, we want to look at the background context of what those expectations might be, make sure that they're reasonable expectations that others are meeting them for the most part and that this is a child who's not able to meet them, and we can track that as well. Great, thank you. Do you know of any electronic technological devices that are used to diagnose ADHD? I know of them, yeah. There are certainly uh, a number of these out there. Probably the most uh, well-known and well-researched uh, 
electronic. Uh, it's software. You know, it's not an actual uh, hardware, but electronic software is, is the continuous performance test, uh, which is a test of sustained attention and impulse control. Where, for example, a child is, looks at a computer screen for an extended period of time, and random uh, letters appear on the screen, and they're instructed to uh, press a button or press a, a key on a keyboard when they see uh, a target stimulus, let's say an X. Every time an X appears, you hit the, uh, you hit the um, uh, an arrow key or something on the keyboard. Um, and then whenever it's uh, a letter other than X, you inhibit that response. Uh, and so these are, these are uh, measures that are used in clinics fairly regularly. And as you might expect, kids with ADHD tend to miss the targets more than um, other kids. So these are called errors of omission. Uh, and they also tend to hit the key when they're not supposed to. They anticipate an X, or they quickly see the letter starting to appear. They think it's an X, and it's a Y, but they've already hit the key. They've already the behavior's already gone. Um, so they make what are called errors of commission, uh, which is, is sensitive to impulse control. Um, that's probably the most widely known uh, electronic assessment technique. I, I did not mention that as part of my uh, presentation for two reasons. One is um, there's not as much data on the use of these electronic assessment measures with preschoolers as you have with uh, uh, older kids and adolescents. In other words, there's really not normative scoring data typically for three and four-year-olds on these measures. So we don't really have a developmental context for that performance. And then secondly, uh, I would rather spend the time, rather than having them do these kind of one-on-one -on -one measures that are not necessarily representative of their real world, uh, I would rather go out and observe them, uh, you know, in real-world settings, interacting with other kids, interacting with teachers, interacting with parents, and seeing what their behavior looks like under real-world conditions, because that can often give me much more information, both diagnostically and in terms of treatment planning, than, than uh, using an electronic uh, measure like a CPT. Great, thank you. Um, I think this is going to be our final question. We have somebody who is referring to the fact that you mentioned that the first line of treatment for young children is parent training. And so their question is, are you concerned with the number of young children receiving medication? Um, and especially since there can be an impact on brain development. I'm concerned about the relative imbalance of um, use of medication relative to use of behavior therapy. Uh, and it's almost twice as many young kids get medication than get behavior therapy, uh, which is, runs counter to the guidelines uh, and to what we know, you know works best with young kids. Um, I'm also concerned with the possibility of side effects. The, the, um, one of the adverse side effects of stimulant medications, for example, is uh, potentially some growth uh, reduction, so reduction in the velocity of growth, height and weight, uh, and that's uh, obviously uh, this is a sensitive growth time, three to five years old, uh, and so one would want to be you know fairly conservative in terms of using an, a, a treatment uh, that might inhibit in, uh, inhibit growth during a, a prime uh, growth period in in a, in a child's life. Um, so yeah, I'm concerned. I, that said, I, I, I certainly know of and have worked with children who uh, not only responded to medication but seemed to require it. 
Uh, and so it's not kind of thing where you never have medication uh, being administered to this age group. But, but I think we need to be much more conservative in uh, prescribing medication to this age group, and we need to uh, help communities to develop more resources for behavior therapy because that is uh, certainly the primary way we want to go with this age group. Great, thank you. Again, thank you to Dr. DuPaul and to all of you for joining us. This concludes our webcast.